You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Darshan Talks live stream to the Darshan Talks interview. I'm your host, Darshan Gulkarni. It's my mission to help you trust the products you depend on. As you know, I'm an attorney, I'm a pharmacist, and I advise companies with FDA-regulated products. So if you think about drugs, wonder about medical devices, or obsess over pharmacy, this is the interview, this is the podcast, this is the live stream for you. Um, I do have to emphasize that I am an attorney, but I'm not your attorney, so this is not legal advice. I am a pharmacist, but I'm not your pharmacist, so this is not clinical advice. Um, I do these uh, interviews because they're a lot of fun. I get I get to talk to someone like my guest today who is incredibly smart, and I find myself learning something new every single time. So it, it'd be great to know if someone's actually listening. If you like what you hear, please like leave a comment, please subscribe. If you want to, if you want to ask our guest questions, please feel free to do so. Uh, leave, a, um, leave a comment or, and, and I can see them and I can sort of interact with them. Um, and after the, after the talk or during the talk, please, please, please feel free to share the video. Um, uh, I do have to emphasize that what we're discussing are considerations. They are not necessarily the opinions of uh, either my guest or myself or our employers. Um, these are just fun, interesting conversations to have. Um, if you want to reach me, you can find me on Twitter at Darshan Talks. Go to our website at darshantalks.com, or you can engage me as a lawyer uh, at kulkarnilawfirm.com. Uh, today's live stream, today's live stream is going to be really interesting. We've had our guest on a few times already. He's a regular, he's an expert, and we bring him on every single time because he tells us something new, interesting, and different that we hadn't quite considered before. What, um, I'm really excited to hear a little bit about today's discussion because um, he's been talking about planning, which, which really excites me because we're cut. As weird as it sounds, everyone's already talking 2022. So we're going to talk a little bit about 2022, but I really want to um, ask him questions about something he mentioned right before we got on, which is um, patient recruitment. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. I'm really excited to, to discover more about it. Um, I do want to emphasize our guest today is the executive director of the Heart Valve Voice US, uh, and, and he is incredibly smart. Our guest for today, John Lewis. Hey, John, how are you? Hello, Darshan. I'm great. How are you? I am good. I I get to see you in what I imagine is a very 1970s, uh, what's, what's the word for it? A mid-century <laughs> modern is, is this fair? This is our yes. This is our um, our beach box house built in 1978, which uh, explains the wood paneling. We are um, in the midst of remodeling room by room to bring it up to date. Uh, our, we actually had our electrician in this morning for some work. So yes, it's a it's a slow process, but uh, it is. We're, we're, but it looks fun. And, and and I'll be honest, I actually have a penchant for mid-century modern looks, so it just has me interested. Um, so, so let's let's start a little bit about uh, how we're all just over 2021 already. I thought 2020 would be the worst year, and I'm not sure uh, I'm necessarily wrong on that one yet. But 2021 wasn't that much better uh, in terms of just how uh, how difficult it was. Uh, I think from a business standpoint, for a lot of people, these were banner years, which is great. But I'm curious, what was it like as a nonprofit in these years? Well, 2020 was certainly 
uh, more disrupted because we did not really, no one anticipated uh, going into the pandemic and the shutdown beginning, you know, mid-March uh, 2020. And you, we may have had plans in place for the year and uh, had to set those aside, had to pivot. It was difficult for many uh, nonprofits and patient advocacy organizations because if you were depending on certain funding streams or grants, uh, they may or may not have happened depending on the priorities and, and frankly, the financial condition of, of those funders. We, we fortunately did not have that issue, but many nonprofits did. Uh, going into 2021, it was while we knew uh, the pandemic would still be with us, we didn't know for how long, we didn't know when the vaccines would become available uh, or if they would become available in 2021. But we were at least able to plan in, uh, in, 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 in the COVID environment. And uh, we were able to pivot some of our campaigns to messaging that was particularly relevant to our patient population during the pandemic, um, uh, explaining to them, encouraging them to stay in touch with their caregivers, to, to reschedule appointments or procedures that may have been sidetracked or delayed or canceled because of uh, hospital capacity issues and, and uh, restrictions on elective surgeries. As we've gone through the year, that has, you know, I think the healthcare system um, about as well as it could has adopted. We've kind of gone to where there's not just a, a blanket ban on, on so-called elective procedures. And as we've talked about before, we're not sure any heart valve procedure is really ever elective. It's not something people do for fun. So it's, um, uh, but we've, we've seen, while well, we saw volumes drop a lot uh, in terms of procedures in 2020 and early 21, we've seen those come back to, if not normal levels, close to normal levels. And of course that has implications for, for the patients who are not being treated, but, um, at least we're able to plan and message accordingly, and um, and, and and our fundraising went fairly well, probably not as well as we would have liked. And and it will be interesting to see, hopefully, if we return to something close to a normal uh, or post-pandemic environment in 2022, how that uh, may affect our ability to uh, to raise funds. So those are some of the things we've. We've observed it's been certainly not easy. Uh, you've got to be flexible. You've got to be adaptable. This is, you know, this is any business. Um, and I saw a great article the other day about you know, how car dealers are are adapting and they're customizing vehicles and they're you know uh, putting more emphasis on service. Although it's difficult to get parts, my car's in the shop now, probably for three weeks awaiting parts. But um, so it's it's. But every industry has to think about that. And when you're dealing um, with patient advocacy, it's, it's very important, especially with you know a population like ours tends to be older, tends to have uh, maybe many conditions in addition to heart valve disease. So it's important to keep their spirits up, um, to keep them informed as best we can about, uh, about access and availability and policies that are uh, designed to help them. Um, because we want, we want them to, to get the best care that is possible under the conditions we have. So, so you talk about the struggles you've had, and I think we can explore that a lot more. But before we get into that, I'm curious, 
Um, do you, what have been the opportunities that that COVID has created for um, for someone like your, uh, for, for an organization like yours? Well, I, I would put that in two, in two categories. One is, uh, as I mentioned, it's the ability to, you know, kind of pivot our messaging and pivot our campaigns to incorporate the messages uh, that are most relevant to COVID, uh, to, to our campaign was just go, encouraging people, especially when the vaccines became available. And as we know, the, the older population has had a much uh, uh, much better uptake on, on vaccines than the younger population to, um, to re-engage in their care and keep that going. So it's, it's, it's pivoting that messaging and um, keeping that on track and the ability to really communicate on a topic that's top of mind for everyone and, and keep the patients engaged. So that was, uh, you know, I don't want to call that an opportunity because we wish it never had happened. Um, and there were, you know, in planning campaigns, we would plan for the duration of the campaign and then had to extend and extend and extend. And there may be a, a, another uh, tweaks coming here at the end of the year. So, and that's something that on one hand, from a purely business standpoint, you look at funding, you look at uh, planning, you look at messaging, the different tactics you can use, whether it's social media or video or community building, what whatever they may be. Um, and in this case, you know, we wanted the campaign to end. We want the campaign to end. We want it to be over. We want to move on to something else. But um, but that was that situation. I think that the second um, lesson is, uh, or at least takeaway for us is. We'd been exploring and we had built a, um, an, an educational program for patients uh, to get involved uh, in research advocacy. And we have evolved that to look more at the role that we can play as Heart Valve Voice in, um, in research, whether that is uh, something like a patient preference study, and I'd love to talk more about the opportunities there, which is kind of a, a more evolving field, or uh, directly uh, involved in recruiting patients for clinical trials. That, um, you know, COVID put a real uh, halt on a lot of clinical research, a real backup on a lot of clinical trials. But now, um, moving forward, there's that opportunity to, to get these going again so we can get new technologies and new drugs into, um, into the pipeline so they can, um, um, so they can become options for, for patients. So that's an area we've really started to explore much more this year and have some, have some really exciting uh, possibilities going on next year. Do, do you think that that is a cutting edge? And the reason I'm asking this question is I've heard people talk about this a lot, the idea of patients having their voice, patients being um, advocates for their health, uh, patients being involved in research advocacy, you know, all that good stuff. Um, but I, when you actually talk to patient advocacy groups in the ground, it's less common. So do you think that uh, there's a big disconnect between what researchers think is happening versus what's actually happening on the ground? And how do you sort of bridge that gap? Yeah, that's a good question. I think part of the part of the issue there is is a tendency to misunderstand and confuse some terms. So there is there there's a concept of uh, patient focused drug development or patient focused uh, 
device development, medical product development, where you are taking the patient's um, thoughts and wishes and considerations into the design of your clinical trials, uh, into the outcomes of the clinical trials, making sure your inclusion exclusion criteria are, are realistic so you can get patients to participate and engage them. So that's at, at kind of the front end. Then there are um, patient-reported outcomes, which, which may occur during the clinical trial process or in clinical care, where the patients are explaining their conditions in ways that may not have been uh, considered or not initially quantified in the research or, or in the initial um, you know, introduction of, of, of the products in the market. Then there are patient preferences that kind of filter all the way through this. And that's, that's a really an emerging area. And um, I think that may be a bit more, I, I don't know if I want to use the term cutting edge, but certainly something that's, that's more newly being explored. And that is, and it's not as simple as does the patient want choice A or choice B. And it's not always yielding to what the patient preference may be because the patient, and I'll give you our example in, in the heart valve space, where a younger patient may be facing two or three valve procedures over the course of their lifetime. The physician who is treating them, whether a surgeon or an interventional cardiologist, has to plan for that. So the, 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 the medical professional has to think out 20 or 30 or 40 years of this patient's life. The patient is often may concerned, understandably, with the immediacy. What is, what is going to be best for me today? How can I get back on my feet uh, quicker today? Um, and so all of that has to be balanced in the area of patient preference and weighed in the area of patient preference. It's something um, you know the FDA is very interested in. It's something uh, we are certainly very interested in having that that um, those patient preferences incorporated into everything from uh, clinical trial design to the shared decision making when a when a patient is is getting prepared um, to undergo their treatment to choose their treatment pathway to uh, ultimately uh, reimbursement and 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 insurance payment. So there's there's many different aspects of that and. Um, and you know we're we're exploring those right now, mostly on the patient preference side, but certainly we're going to look at uh, patient reported outcomes and um, and other areas. So let's talk a little bit about that. You talk about um, as I, as I see three major areas that patients might get pulled into, uh, at least from the perspective of the heart valve voice. And and what I'm thinking about is study design, patient patient reported outcomes, and then reimbursement. Those are the three you sort of pointed out. Uh, my question for you is that you, it sounds like you, number one, started from the patient-reported outcomes. Is that correct, or did I, did I misunderstand you? Um, I think I started with the, the patient-focused product development or, or in, the research, okay. in, the, in the research design, the clinical trial design. The study design, okay. Um, so when you, when you started with the study design, my, my question is, first of all, how did you decide that's the first place to start? Like that, it, Was it lowest-hanging fruit? Was it opportunistic? Um, how do you, in terms of planning, make those decisions? Well, I think that that is an area that's been, that's really evolved over the last uh, 10 years or so. 
um, uh, certainly somewhat driven by the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute, and we, we just completed, uh, we just wrapped up a grant from them uh, training patient advocates and research um, that I alluded to. So that is an important area, and that provides many opportunities. So part of the message there, and part of the message through any of, of any type of patient engagement is empowering the patient to advocate for themselves, regardless of what that environment may be. So if it's if it's in the design of a clinical trial, if they have an opportunity to be in a focus group or an advisory panel to really represent their view and the and the broader patient view, if it's before um, an FDA review panel to represent that, if they have an opportunity before payers to explain why this new treatment may be important to patients that that the payers may be missing from an economic standpoint. So there is um, there is there is all of that. So that is really um, kind of where it starts. Um, patient reported outcomes. The science of that has been around a while. It it's it's you know not well understood. We don't have great definitions in a lot of a lot of areas. We don't have great um, quality metrics in a lot of areas about what that really means. It continues to evolve, and we want to be involved in that conversation. And then the patient preferences are, um, you know, again, filter through all of this. And it's 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 a really, as I learn more about it, it's just a fascinating science. And um, the work to go into quantifying patient preferences. And again, it may not be a choice of A or B, but it may be uh, something along degrees. And how do you work these patient preferences into the overall discussion of what is going to be the best treatment for that individual patient? So let's start with the beginning. Let's, let's say you've got a potential um, a study design question that's been raised to you. My question for you is, who's raising this? Is it a is it the medical affairs function? Is it the clinical research function? Is it a combination? How are they? How are they? How do they know who you are? How do they reach out to you? And and who do you engage with for the most part? Yeah, that's a good question. It could come from the clinical team. It could come from medical affairs. In, in those organizations that have patient engagement and patient advocacy functions, hopefully they are involved as part of that team that is helping to design that trial to make sure the, the trial is, and it's an overused term, but patient-centric, uh, that it is meeting the needs of the patients. And this is not only saying, okay, what, what outcomes are going to be important to patients that may be we weren't measuring. And these may not be purely clinical outcomes, you know, uh, blood pressure, heart rate, what have you, but, but um, quality of life measures and things like that, that may be important to patients that you can capture in the course of that trial. But it's also um, looking at that trial protocol and having patients look at that and read over, you know, what is going to be required of the patient to participate in this clinical trial and and you'll have patients say, there's nobody who's going to agree to be in this clinical trial because this is just too burdensome, or this is requiring too much, or the way you've structured your inclusion-exclusion criteria, you're going to have a very small pool of patients 
who will be, be willing to do this. And it's, um, it, it, it's, it's especially an acute issue in the medical device area. And we're dealing obviously with, um, you know, very sophisticated heart valves and, and other structural heart type devices where uh, if you commit to, if, as a patient, if you commit to being in that clinical trial, you're going to get an experimental heart valve. And um, it's not like a, a drug trial where you can take the drug for a week or a month, and if if it's if you're having side effects or it's not working, you can just leave the trial. So it's it's a big commitment to ask a patient to participate in this type of clinical trial, and it's so important that uh, considerations and their concerns be dealt with upfront as that trial is being designed. So you're talking about. Um getting patients to commit. Here's my question. First of all, how do you choose the patients? And secondly, um, how do they agree, especially when something like you just mentioned, the case of a heart valve, that's a big commitment on their part. How do they decide that this is something I want to be involved in? That's a good question. And and I, I actually think we need more research around that area of how patients make those decisions. And it's something we may be looking into next year as well. And And it's from our um, with with our capabilities and I think what I would call our our credibility with our community, we can make patients aware of these trials. We can explain to them the basics of what it means to participate. We don't want to be in any position uh, that looks you know coercive or a cheerleader for a particular trial, a particular product, a particular drug, but we do want to make this information available because this may be the device or the drug that will treat them better than something currently on the market or give them access to something um, that may potentially be better for them. So that is our role. We have partnered with a, uh, with a firm called uh, Antidote, and a big part of their model is to partner with patient organizations like ours, and they can perform, Antidote can perform the, the screening functions for the patient, the questionnaires, the follow-up contact, the connecting them, uh, the, the informed consent process, connecting them to um, the research site that is uh, most convenient for them. So our role in this is really the, the front-end outreach, um, and I will use a, a marketing term that is not as patient friendly, but that uh, the audience will understand, which is which is basically lead generation. So you mentioned you partnered with Antidote. My question for you is, who pays for Antidote? Is it you or is it the sponsor? It's the sponsor. So so we are playing a role in, um, in that uh, recruitment and, um, and paid a fee that is you know, depending on how the trial is structured, um, uh, a fee for our services. So you've now got a situation where you're doing the lead generation. You, uh, they are uh, the sponsors paying you a fee. Uh, you have a, a vault of trust that you reach into, and you go, "Here's a potential solution uh, for you as a patient." How do you decide which patients? Do, do, you, do you play a part in choosing the patients at all? Or uh, do, you, do you sort of create or help create key opinion patients? 
it, it, so it, it would it would vary. So if we are looking at, um, and I'll separate out like an advisory role where we we do, and we have played a role in helping a sponsor select uh, participants in focus groups or a participant for an advisory panel because we we know them, we know who's qualified, we know who's who who understands. Um, the responsibilities who may have gone through our training program. So in that role, we are we are we play a more consultative role. In when we're talking about direct uh, participation in a clinical trial and in an interventional trial, that our our job there, our mission there, is to make patients aware, uh, to counsel them appropriately, to never violate that bond of of trust. Um, and to encourage them to make the decision that is best for them in consultation with their with their medical professionals, with their families, et cetera. So do you do that using uh, online forums? Do you do that using uh, mailing lists, uh, Twitter chats? Like, how, how do you engage your constituency, for lack of a better term? Yeah, right now there are, we use three uh, primary channels uh, maybe four. So we have a, you know, we have a, a, a patient list, people who engage with us regularly and um, uh, an email list. And, and so we will engage with them. We have our online patient community, My Valve, My Voice, which is uh, growing about 20% a month and, um, and is increasingly active. And um, however, most of the patients in that patient community have already been treated. So they may or may not be eligible for another another trial, and then um, the third way is through social media and digital advertising, and that is um, you know that's obviously where more expense uh, comes in, where the messaging has to be uh, more targeted, um, and we work through that, and 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 we're able we've proven to be pretty effective there, but. Um, generating interest uh, and and having a patient go all the way through the process is is still very very difficult. It's it's funny, um, as you know, we usually aim for these to be about fifteen twenty minutes. I have so many questions about your advisory panel, but we're already at twenty seven minutes. So I want to be respectful of your time. Um, it, it definitely sounds like a topic we need to explore the next time you come on, uh, assuming you're still interested in coming on, but. Uh, <laughs> yes, and I may, I may have more. To, I, hopefully, I have hopefully I have more to share as we're we're starting to build out some some you know case examples of of how this works. Yeah, I'd actually love to talk to you at some point about a case study and talking a little bit about what that looks like in your case. So we, we should have that discussion for sure. Um, but but what I'd like what I'd like to do is just to just to place a thought out there. Um, you talked about advisory panels. And you talked a little bit about um, the the role uh, you play in that. So could you, number one, uh, explain what are advisory panels? Uh, again, which group within pharma is helping sort of requesting assistance with an advisory panel? Is it uh, medical affairs? Is it sales? Is it reimbursement? Is it all of them? Um, and and um, and what what part of it do you do? So the the advisory panels are play that the, the role I was discussing earlier of reviewing 
um, and one example, probably the primary example, reviewing the trial protocol to see really how realistic is it for a patient to, to get involved in this trial? How realistic is it for them to meet the inclusion exclusion criteria? What is the benefit to the patient there? What is the level of effort or, or inconvenience? What are the outcomes that are being measured that are going to matter to them, whether they're, they're clinical outcomes or lifestyle outcomes? So that's really the role of those advisory panels. Where that comes from, you know, in an organization, in a, in a pharma organization or, or a medical device company really depends on, on how they're structured, but ultimately it's coming through their, you know, their clinical research team. And that um, interest in engaging patients at that level really varies widely from, from company to company. And, of course, we advocate for, and we think it's to everyone's benefit, including the trial sponsor, to engage patients thoroughly to design a protocol that um, is more friendly for them and easier for them to navigate. Because we know the, problem, the big problem with clinical trials in any kind of clinical trial is recruiting people into the trial. And, and um, we see you know, so many protocols, uh, I shouldn't say so many, we see protocols, you know, and I'll read them and I'll say, nobody's gonna volunteer for this trial. <laughs> you know, because they've been designed you know, for this scientific um, perfection that just, that is not realistic when you, when you try to get a real patient into it. So it's, it's, um, that is the, you know, kind of ongoing challenge and tension. And, um, you know, we wish more organizations uh, had this patient focus and, um, and we're, and we're, and we're committed to it. It almost makes me wonder, and no one's done this, but I really wish someone would do a study on the cost of bad clinical trial designs. It, it, yeah. Because it sounds like the amount of money you spend in uh, clinical trial agreement amendments, the amount of money you spend in trying to recruit patients who aren't coming, the amount of money you spend in developing something and then redeveloping it, um, having resources uh, deployed that aren't doing anything because you just had a bad design. Um, those all need to sort of be put onto paper. And, and the patient voice is a critical role in deciding what that is. Yes, that, and that is, would be a really, really small upfront cost versus all of the things you just mentioned uh, in, the, in the cost of that trial. I mean, if you could recruit for a clinical trial, you know, 30 days sooner, that, right. that is that is millions of dollars in exactly so yeah um well as you know uh i'm gonna ask you four questions uh the first question we've been sort of throwing out the whole time but how can people contact you sure my email is john at heartvalvevoice-us.org there it is uh i am on twitter at j lewis dc that would be the uh, the best ways to contact me perfect my next question what would you like to ask the audience I would like to ask the audience to think about whether their organizations have a real commitment to patients. Are they really patient-centric as they may claim to be? Um, are they really, do they really design their business around the patient? Or how much of that is, is real? What can they do better? I love that question. Uh, here, here's how I think most organizations will answer that. I think it depends on who you ask. I think the people in clinical research 
will say, we took X, Y, Z steps, therefore we must be patient-centric, as opposed to, um, say, sales, who goes, I have no idea who designed this thing because it has no reflection on usability, as opposed to someone who might be a patient advocate who's assisting that that company going, I wouldn't sign up for this study. So I think it depends on who you'd ask. But um, you're right. I think there's a lot of lip service that's generally given. That's been the problem with patient-centric behavior for at least the last 20 to 30 years. It's a lot of lip service and not enough uh, actual um, steps forward. Um, And that's not to say that people aren't doing it. It's just not enough. So so I, I think that that will be uh, really interesting. So great great sort of comment more than a question, but yeah, your, your point stands. Um, what's something you learned in the last month? So I'll give you an example of something I heard, by the way. One was, uh, did you know an octopus has three hearts? I, I, did, I, did, not, I did not know that. <laughs> I thought that was such a great one. So, I did not know that. So, 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 from a, so from a business opportunity, you know, there's there's three times the the ability to do uh, heart valve uh, heart valve replacements in in in, in octopus if they have heart valve. I don't know. Um, sorry, that was where my mind went. The um, uh, thing I learned in the last week was, um, and we've talked a little bit about this in the past, and 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 this is similar to what we discussed about in in patient centricity and sincerity, and we've talked about uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion in the past, and. What I've learned is, and and this came through at some parts of our board meeting as well, and as much as we want to commit to addressing these issues, it's not easy. And, And we really have to, and we don't want to pay lip service to it. We don't want to say, oh, here's our diversity initiative over here. Go, you know, go to this website and you'll know all you need to know about diversity in clinical trials or diversity in, in heart valve disease or patient access or what have you. Trying to find the right project, the right message, the right vehicle to to get involved, to have an impact, because I, that ultimately we need to have an impact. I want to have an impact, or I'm 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 useful. So. <laughs> How do we, how do we have an impact? What is the right vehicle to do that? And that is a a difficult process um, to go through. Worth doing, and we're close on some things, but but we want to make sure they're the right things. I have to ask this question. It's not one of the questions I asked, but I'm curious because you mentioned this. According to you, is the job of a good manager? that they make an impact or is the job of a good manager so that it looks so effortless that no one knows that he or she's not even there? Well, I'm not sure that's contradictory. I think, um, so I, I guess it's, it's, it's how, 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 how boldly you look like you're making an impact maybe. And, 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 um, but, um, you can make an impact and, and not be loud, um, as long as you're effective. And you know, and, there, and there's different parts too. There are times if we're involved in in uh, a policy debate um, that may uh, benefit patients or may harm patients, we're going to be pretty loud, and we're going to be out there. Um, I don't know if we'll necessarily be effective, right? You know, you, you don't know. Um, in day-to-day management and planning and strategy, 
you know, I think you can be quiet, you can move ahead and, you know, get done what you need to get done. Very cool. Um, I'm going to ask you one more question. What's something that made you happy in the last week? I, I was actually prepared for this question this time. Uh, <laughs> I recently, in the last couple of weeks, bought a new mountain bike. And so going on, going on bike rides um, and upgrading my, my bike has been, uh, has been a lot of fun for me in the last, uh, in the last week and all, over the last couple of weeks. And I'm looking forward to maybe a ride this afternoon. So, um, yeah, that's, uh, I, may be, I may be a little old to be getting into this sport, but, uh, but it's fun. Oh, that's awesome. Um, so you, you said you're at the beach. So are, do you have the mountains near you? No, no. So we don't have mountains. <laughs> I guess some beaches have mountains. Our beach does not have mountains. Uh, we do have some very nice trails, though. Through, you know, oh, wooded, wooded, wooded trails uh, through um, uh, uh, nature preserve and, and forests type. So, yeah, so they're not, it's not strictly a mountain, but um, yeah, trail riding. Fair enough. I, I, this question that I'm going to ask you next was actually inspired by another guest I had recently because I was blown away by the answer. Um, what's something most people don't know about you? There's a lot, there's a lot people don't know about me. So I, you know, first impression, um, I appear, uh, uh, pretty intense and maybe, um, unfriendly and unapproachable. And, um, I, I, I don't hide expressions very well. My wife, knows me very well will periodically say to me why do you look like you're going to kill somebody and it's really, <laughs> it's really just and i say that's how i look i mean it's just me thinking and and, and like, yes and i like to think i'm you know i'm a more friendly person um than i appear to be at first at at first blush so if if there's anything i'd like if, if, if there's a, a notion about me i'd like to dispel maybe turning your question around a little bit it would be that you know i'm i'm not approachable or i'm this super intense person I, I am pretty intense but that but that um but that's often just me being in thought it's not it's not hostility yeah. it's not anger it's it's just it's just it's the way i look and there's not much i can do about it at this point have you heard the term rbf before uh oh yes <laughs> <laughs> yes Rest, resting bitch face yes. um yes and that's that 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 is um that may not quite be it with me but it's it's in that realm. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, this was, as always, such a fun conversation. Thank you so much again for being part of this, John. I hope we can have you back soon again. And um, st again, just to remind everyone, how can people reach you? Uh, email john at heartvalvevoice-us.org. And I should mention it's dash us because there are other heart valve voices out there. And at Twitter, uh, at J. Lewis, D.C. Awesome. Thank you again, John. Uh, look forward to having you on again. Thank you very much. Always a pleasure.